Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Oh, hey there, folks. It's me, Andrew Pierce. You might have noticed that the Awards Don't Matter podcast feed is now merged with the Curb podcast feed. And you've suddenly, if you've subscribed to Awards Don't Matter, suddenly seen that there is a whole wealth of interviews and things that you have no idea about appear in your podcast feed. This is nothing to be alarmed by, as the show will now be hosted on the main podcast feed alongside those interviews I do for the Curb. As you may have noticed as well, the Awards Don't Matter has been a little dormant, with it being almost two years since the last episode was released, which is shame on us and shame on me too, as it's taken nearly that length of time to edit the one episode we have in the can, discussion on William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives. I'll play the trailer in a moment, but you'll note in the intro that Dave and I talk about what we've been doing with our lives. Well, Dave got engaged and I was busy working on a book. And that book, the Australian Film Book, Volume 1, is now out in the world. I'm busy working on a second book creatively titled The Australian Film Book, Volume 2. Dave, on the other hand, is now happily married and, as far as I can tell, not working on another marriage, which is wonderful. Uh, Anyhow, we aim to bring you more episodes of Awards Don't Matter in the future. I'll corral Dave into recording an episode on It's a Wonderful Life 2. Not It's a Wonder Life 2, but It's a Wonderful Life Also, I don't know if there will ever be a sequel to It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe in our AI future, we will never know. For now, here's our chat about the best years of our life. These are the great personalities who bring a memorable experience to glowing life. Samuel Goldwyn's Masterpiece. The screenplay was written by Robert E. Sherwood, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Petrified Forest and Idiot's Delight. From this, William Wyler, who won the Academy Award for his direction of Mrs. Miniver, wove a pattern of motion picture magic, with Myrna Loy and Frederick March living through the heartwarming second bloom of love. Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright feeling the breathtaking thrill of love at first sight. Hoagie Carmichael spreading his own brand of stardust. All of them together, giving all of us the best years of our lives. Cat is staring at me from behind. I know. I see <laughs> the ears pop up every once in a while. Like, hey, motherfucker, what's up? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome. This us again. It's us again. Awards don't matter. The people who do awards don't matter. Hello. We're back. We're back. (laughs) We exist. We are real. We're back on your feed. Yeah. Who knows for how long? Might be a long time. (laughs) Might be a short time. Who knows? That's right. Time is meaningless. Um, What have you been doing in the meantime since we last recorded, Dave? Oh, you know, nothing really. I just got engaged to be married. You know, (laughs) little things like that. 
Yeah, it's been uh, it's been exciting. You've been very busy. I've been very busy. Uh, so fuck the listeners, basically. Like, yeah, we've been really busy living life. Um, but you couldn't keep us away for quite long enough. We are sadly back to talk about Oscars. <laughs> exactly. So Dave's gotten engaged. I've been writing a book. You can find more mm-hmm. about that later on in the future. Um, but yeah, so that's why we've that's why we haven't been around because we've been busy with life and living mm-hmm. and Christmas and all this kind of stuff. And we had a perfect film to discuss uh, for Christmas, which will be a future episode. But <laughs> on this episode, what are we talking about? <laughs> uh, we're talking about an Oscar winner, not some loser movie. Uh, the best years of our lives. I guess it has. it's also known as Glory for Me or Home Again. I didn't realize it had three different titles, but that's according to the Wikipedia. Uh, but yeah, the best years of our lives directed by William Wyler. That's that's what we're talking about today. More war, Andrew. We are back to talk about more violence. <laughs> like Jesus, the Oscars, man, they love their war pictures. They sure do. There's no violence on screen here, though. Unlike yeah, yeah. William Wyler's previous Best Picture and Best Director winner, Mrs. Miniver. Uh, Ugh, God. And unlike his next and final Best Picture winner, which is Ben-Hur, which is as violent as they come mm. for the time. Um, true. But this one, yeah, he wins Best Picture, it wins Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Editing, Adapted Screenplay, and Original Score, and stars the wonderful Jeez. Theresa Wright. Um, I knew you were going to break her up. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that matters. Uh, she's the only person in this film. There are other people, but... <laughs> She's the only person that matters. But this is a really wonderful story about post-World War II and three veterans who are returning to the hometown of Boone City in somewhere America, Midwest America. (laughs) And one is a from the Navy, one's a uh, pilot, and the other one's a sergeant. And so we get all tiers of the the soldier perspective. And it's about their life as they come home. Now... Are you as cynical as me and looked at the runtime for this and went, oh, this is going to be another, like, Mrs. Miniver turgid film? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because it's, like, darn near three hours, right? Yeah, 172 minutes. Yeah, it's it's a long movie. Um, And it did make me think as I was watching it, and you you do understand pretty quickly why it's such a long movie. You're essentially telling three intersecting stories uh, throughout this movie. And, like, if if you focused solely on one character you'd have like a normal length of movie so you you start to get it and andrew i gotta tell you i was so ready i was ready to come on here before <laughs> i watched the movie like i was gonna be like after this that that this movie sucks look at what it look at you know the other movies that were nominated my god uh this nonsense more but it's it's really good it's, it's a really good movie like you could call I, it great it's okay to call it great because it is i great. will not um i will i i don't know if it's uh, i i think we use words like that too easily um or i do at least i I find that i slip into this was amazing this was great and there's nothing wrong with being very good this is a very good movie will i ever watch it again absolutely not i'm not ever going to spend another three hours watching this but i'm glad i watched it and the performances are really what carries it um i think all three lead all three lead male characters are wonderful in this in very different ways i like the fact that not only do we have like kind of three different areas of the military and jobs in the military, but different um, different points of life, 
right? Mm. For all of these men when it comes to their families, when it comes to their careers and their lives. And you can see how they intersect and, and the different challenges each one of them faces. And God, it's, it's really, really good, Andrew. Like I had, I, I am shocked by how much I enjoyed this movie. It is so well performed and so comfortably, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about Drive My Car and how that is a three hour long film that just mm-hmm. fits its runtime perfectly because it takes its time. It is a very patient film in getting to the point that it needs to get to. And with Best Years of Our Lives, I didn't realize until it was actually happening that some of these scenes last for 10, 15 minutes. And mm-hmm. You know, that used to happen quite a bit. There used to be films that took their time with basic setup scenes. Like there is a sequence where um, Frederick March's uh, Sergeant Al is waking up after a hangover. And mm. there is a sequence that goes for maybe about five minutes of him just getting up and dealing with the morning. And that <laughs> includes throwing his shoes out the window and just trying to recognize I am very hungover. Where am I? I'm back at home, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the film goes to great lengths of making sure that we are on this journey with them. And because of that, the brevity of uh, the time that we have with them, which is three hours. It's a short time really in, you know, the grand scheme of things. Yeah. We spend a lot of that over a couple of days. Like this is not a long you know, long journey. This is only a couple of days with them. And we make sure that we get to spend pivotal pivotal moments with them and getting to understand what it's like immersing themselves back into day-to-day life. And that's no more important than Harold Russell's uh, award-winning turn here. He is, you know, quite a a brilliant performance here as uh, Homer. And it's an important win of course because Harold is yes. disabled he does not have his forearms there are you know he lost them during the war and so it is an informed performance but um mm-hmm. his narrative is really important because he's yeah. afraid of how people see him uh and there's so much going on here yeah yeah i as i was watching that performance in particular i was stunned that this performance was in this time period like it feels so forward thinking Mm. Right. The way it deals with it, not just his performance, but the way it's written that he's never, even though he has a disability, you never see him as less than. Yeah. Right. You never see him. You see him as a hero. You see someone who's struggling. You see him making his way through life and like these small, seemingly small adjustments that have to be made, like the, the type of glass that he can pick up versus that he can't, you know, things we as, you know, more able-bodied folk like don't ever think about Mm. right and it's like and it does a really good job of both showing those difficulties but also building him up and building up his character like there is a just a beautiful sequence later in the movie because the whole movie is kind of pushing this girl away who was you know before he left this was his sweetheart and they were going to get married and it's it's going to be great um and he pushes her away pushes her away because he can't bring himself to like put his his arm around her, which is a implement at this mm. point. And then she keeps telling him like, I'm here. I'm here. I'm not going away. Like, I love you. I don't care. Let me help. Let me be there for you. And the scene where he walks her through everything that he has to do to go to bed is heart wrenching. This is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. 
can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. I'm as dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. Well, now you know, Wilma. Now you have an idea of what it is. I guess you don't know what to say. It's all right. Go on home. Go away like your family said. I know what to say, Homer. I love you. And I'm never going to leave you. Never. I love you, Wilma. I always have it, and I always will. And the vulnerability that he shows as well. Yeah, yeah, it's like I was looking for that word exactly. Like he's being so vulnerable in front of her, and you, especially during this time in American history in film history, you don't really see that vulnerability from men unless it's in a mocking way. Mm. And it there is not, I don't know if you saw anything, but I didn't see a single frame in this movie that mocked Homer ever, mm. even when he struggles and when he screws up and when he breaks things because he can't, he can't hold on to things. Like you're never meant to laugh at him. You're meant to engage with him and, and not even pity him. Like, I don't think it's even a pitying performance. It's just a like, wow, this is really hard. And I hope Homer makes it through. Because mm. that scene where he like smashes the window in frustration, you know, come see the monster. Like, it, it's brutal. Like, and it's such a good performance. Like, I think my only, my only negative in this movie is like the female characters are extremes. Right. Yeah. They're either like the perfect woman or the like the loose woman at the nightclub. Like those are the only two options. You can't have somebody. I guess like the uh, one of our lead characters, daughter, who falls in love with another one of our lead characters. Like she's the only one who's kind of in between because she is like there is a point where she's like, yeah, I'm going to break up this marriage. Yeah. That's and right. She says it That's so brilliantly as well. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a great little moment. And I, I like the interactions between her and her parents. And I also like that, like, all three of these men have their difficulties, mm. right? Homer's is the most obvious. It's on the surface. You can literally see he does not have his forearms. It's pretty obvious. Um, but then you have, you know, our older character who goes into, goes back into banking, and he clearly has a drinking problem. And, like, it, it's interesting because in the beginning of the film, it's, like, kind of a joke and mm. kind of fun, like, you know, uh, very Nick and Nora uh, type drinking and then as the movie goes on you're like oh this is kind of a serious issue <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is problematic and then your third character you know essentially has PTSD yeah he has these night terrors where he's screaming out for men who have died because he went on all these bombing missions so it's like they all have their own struggles but none of them are so ridiculous and over the top that you get distanced from it 
Like you feel for all three of these men in different ways, but you feel for all of them and you want them to be happy. And it's, and it's especially painful and difficult when two of the men are at odds. Exactly. Um, Cause you have the father and then the, you know, the daughter's in love with this other guy. And there's that scene in the, you know, in the booth where he's just like, just tells him straight, like, you gotta, you gotta go away. Yeah. You're you a married man. The, you can't do this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and it's so hurtful because you want the best for him. And you, and it's, they make it very clear from the beginning that this woman who he is married to is uh, not great. Uh, not someone you want your lead character with um, kind of money grubbing mm. kind of party lifestyle. And it's very clear that you're not supposed to like her, like her, which again, is my only complaint of the movie is those, the, the women at home are very extreme yeah. in either direction. But the film does a good job of never making you anticipate that Millie, uh, sorry, not Millie, Peggy and um, Fred, I think it is, are the ones who are actually going to end up next to each other. You know, you don't actually believe that that it is a foregone conclusion because the film does suggest that he will just walk away and do the right thing and be with his wife and live that life until, you know... He's his hand is forced and she divorces him because, you know, the right. inevitability there. And that scene is a little bit trite for sure, um, because sure, it feels sure. like a we need to get this plot moving kind of thing. We've got, you know, but even even after they split and he runs off, like, I don't think even then it's a foregone conclusion mm. that these two characters are going to end up together. Like, you're like, I don't know, maybe they just go their own separate ways, you know? And then of course you have this wedding at the end to bring everyone together, which is really nice and, you know, Hollywoody, uh, but sweet and it yeah. works. And, and I like that they don't immediately, just fall back into each other's arms. There's a beautifully shot sequence where he is just staring at her throughout the wedding and taking her in. And like, it's very rare. You can see like love in Mm. a look on screen. And that is due to his performance, her performance, but also the angle and the shot that is used there where you see kind of, you see the, what the party going on in soft focus. Yeah. Uh, it's very like West Side Story in that way, right? Where like all these other things are going on, but the only thing I can see clearly is her. And it's a beautiful shot. It's just like, oh, God, these two, they have to be together. Well, that's the thing is this is a film that is full of beautiful shots. And oddly, it wasn't yeah. nominated for any of the cinematography, and that's fine. But the key thing that is very interesting is that throughout the film, there are these beautifully split shots and they mm-hmm. do kind of mostly focus on Fred as a character. And, of course, there's that wedding shot, which is almost like... It feels very De Palma-esque because they're both in focus. Mm-hmm. The wedding's in focus and he's in focus far away. But then early on in the film, there is a moment when, as you were saying, that moment where um, Al and Fred are talking and Al basically says, you can't be with my daughter at all. And there is this beautifully in-shot, framed focus shot of... Fred on the phone having a conversation far in the back of this frame while everything mm-hmm. else, the action is happening. Oh at yeah. The front. Yeah. Yeah. And then oh, of course, um, Homer is then showing Al how he plays the piano and stuff all the while Fred's still on the phone. And then mm-hmm. at a later stage as well, there is this beautiful moment where Fred stands up for Homer in the bar with this oh. conspiracy theorist kind of guy 
And mm-hmm. it's another moment that reinforces the power of their bond and their, their friendship, which is just right. reinforced from the very first moment that they, they meet each other. Because they don't know each other prior to hopping on a plane nope. back home. Nope. And they immediately become friends. Hello, Omar. Hi, Fred. How have you been? Glad to see you. Say, Fred. Yeah? What happened at Butchers? What do you mean? I mean, uh, you and Al, was there any trouble? Oh, no, we were just having a little friendly chat. There you are, sir. Thanks. What'll yours be, Homer? Oh, I don't care. Give me a chocolate sundae. Okay. Hi. How are you, soldier? Sailor. Excuse me. Say, uh, you mind if I ask you a personal question? I know what it is. How did I get these hooks and how do they work? That's what everybody says when they start off. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Well, I'll tell you. I got sick and tired of that old pair of hands I had. You know, an awful lot of trouble washing them and manicuring my nails. So I trade them in for a pair of these latest models. They work by radar. Look. Pretty cute, eh? You got plenty of guts. It's terrible when you see a guy like you that had to sacrifice himself. And for what? And for what? I don't get you, mister. Well, Anything else for you? Check. We let ourselves get sold down the river. We were pushed into war. Sure, by the Japs and the Nazis, so we oh, had... Oh, the Germans and the Japs had nothing against us. They just wanted to fight the Limeys and the Reds. And they would have whipped them, too. We didn't get deceived into it by a bunch of radicals in Washington. What are you talking about? We fought the wrong people, that's all. Just read the facts, my friend. Find out for yourself why you had to lose your hands. And then go out and do something about it. You better pay your check, brother, and go home. Well, who do you think you are? Pay the cashier right over there. Coffee, please. And that's another thing. Every soda jerk in this country's got an idea he's somebody. Look here, mister. What are you selling, anyway? I'm not selling anything but plain old-fashioned Americanism. Some Americanism. So we're all a bunch of suckers, eh? So we should have been on the side of the Japs and the Nazis, eh? Again, I say, just look at the facts. I've seen a couple of facts. I've seen a ship go down and over 400 of my shipmates went with it. Were those guys suckers? That's the unpleasant truth. And the sooner we get wise to it, the better off we're going to... If if I only had my hands... You put those down! Take your hands off of it! Maybe I get through, please. Go get the druggist. Yes, sir. Make great space. What happened? It was Fred Derry. He hit him. Bring some aromatic spirits of ammonia, iodine, and bandages. Yes, sir. Don't say it, chum. The customer's always right, so I'm fired. But this customer wasn't right. I'll meet you outside in a minute, kid. But he stands up for him for Homer in this uh, this bar and basically Homer's like you know if I had fists I would punch your face out 
and then Fred takes it as being like, all right, I will do that. And then we I've see... I've got those. Yeah, <laughs> I've got those. And then we see the background and we see what's going on there. And that's reflected even further back as well when Fred is having a conversation with Peggy and they're having a conversation about perfume and stuff. And he's like, look, you have to make out like you're actually going to buy something because mm. otherwise we will get in trouble. Man, that scene is so... There is so much sexual chemistry in that scene. (laughs) It's like palpable. Like, and this is, I mean, it's one of the things I love about older movies, right? Is they couldn't go so over the top um, with the sexual situations and the flirtation. So it's almost like they had to work a little bit harder to get that libido on Mm. the screen. And that sequence, like the way those two look at each other, you're like, oh my God, will you get a room? Like this is... (laughs) My goodness. But you bring up the cinematography, which was stunning. And what was the Academy doing at this period of time? Like, maybe you know this. There's only, like, basically there's Best Cinematography Black and White and Best Cinematography Color. And there's only, like, two movies in each that get nominated. Like, they just, like, pick two. So The Yearling and Anna and the King of Siam won for Color and Black and White, respectively. But it's like, where's the rest? Everything else has, like, at least five nominees. It's like the cinematographers went like, ah, that one. We're going we're gonna to get yeah, to that one. That makes no, we're not no gonna sense. Tell you else. <laughs> and <laughs> keep in no mind, this is the year that Brief Encounter was also out as well. David Lean was nominated for oh. Best Director. Like, that film wasn't Another. even nominated for Best Picture. We'd be talking about that as well if we had a chance, but uh, it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Um, and that's a visually stunning film, too. You know? And if you want to hear me talk about Brief Encounter, you can go listen <laughs> to Offscreen Death, because we covered that previously. Yeah, I, it's a great, great movie. Like Perfect film. Maybe... Maybe the best movie about longing I have ever seen, and that's, like, my catnip. Like, I love that stuff. Like, give me a movie about people who love each other, but they don't get the opportunity to be with one another. Man, that is like, yeah, man, this is where it's at. Um, But speaking of the Academy, like, this is is an interesting year for nominated films. Did you manage to watch all of them? Are you still doing that? (laughs) I did, and it's so much easier now. (laughs) There's only five. Um, so Henry V, I mean, obviously Lawrence Olivier doing Shakespeare, it's going to be good, uh, but it's, I don't know, it's not anything to write home about. It looks very, very much just like a filmed theatrical presentation. Mm -hmm. Like, it's fine. Um, The Razor's Edge is another war picture about the, the horrors of war and, you know, you've kind of seen it before. It's fine. Uh, and then your favorite movie, The Yearling, uh, that I know you're really anxious. (laughs) Jane Wyman murders a deer. Oh, God. (laughs) It's rough. I don't know, man. It, you know, I I think a little bit it's ruined because I know how that movie ends. Like, I, you know, it's like people now watching Old Yeller, like, you know, this is going to be fucking sad. So it kind of, I think it takes away a little bit of that sadness because mm-hmm. you kind of know where it's coming. But it is just, I don't know, it's a weird, it's a weird movie, man. Like, you have a pet, you have a pet deer. Really? That's what, you, all right, I guess. Um, it's American Dave. You know, yeah, I I'm literally before we were recording was watching videos of people having bobcats in their houses. So you know, a deer, small game. Yeah, I guess. quite yeah, literally. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you know, obviously, like I've made very clear, and we'll talk about in a future episode how I feel about it's a wonderful life. Like I think it's, it's one a of terrible film. probably the it's one of the twenty five <laughs> best movies ever made. Like I think it's I think it's truly truly incredible. Which is why I was so ready to hate this movie. <laughs> I, I I thought I was gonna have the like what uh, Citizen Kane fans feel. Um, <laughs> about how green was my valley, like just like ah, oh, fuck this movie. It's the one that took it away. But I'm, you know, I'm not mad at this. 
I'm not mad at this at all. I think it's actually a very, very good movie. I think it's, it's. I mean, I, I haven't like redone my rankings of the movies that we watched at mm-hmm. one Best Picture so far, but it's certainly, it's certainly up there. I, I, I think high, so too. High quality movie. Yeah. yeah. I think to me, this is what a Best Picture winner should be. Um, in a lot of ways, it should be something that is so well considered that is. At, like William Wyler is one of the great directors. That's there's no denying that. Mm-hmm. Oh um, yeah. You know, as much as we may dig on Mrs. Miniver, you know, this is a guy who has done some really that great really films. But the best years of our lives, as I was saying, like in that episode, I hadn't seen this film yet, and then watching Mrs. Miniver, I thought, oh, I get the feeling that that is what he's the stuff that is in the best years of our lives is certainly stuff that he was trying to explore during wartime with Mrs. Mrs. Miniver, but couldn't do it because the war was raging. And here Uh, he's mm -hmm. able to actually, he's got the space to actually look at what's going on and to look at it in a reflective manner that is very empathetic and very caring and very progressive for a time that is, you know, maybe not as progressive as it seems in the history books. And mm-hmm. granted, they keep, you know, America keeps on taking away the history books, so it's hard to keep track of these things. But it's a bit, you know, my my point of view is watching a lot of 1950s films, and granted, this came out in 1946, so it's leading into the 1950s. But sure. the 1950s films look back at the 1940s post-war in a way that is mm-hmm. kind of like, eh, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> Right, you know, right. It's not a problem. Whereas this is very much like, hey, people, we have problems. We need to mm-hmm. address them and we need to address them now. And again, like there, I was very surprised to see a conspiracy theorist character in this film. <laughs> like, Dude, I couldn't believe that sequence. Like, I was just like, what? I, I had a lot of this feeling when I was watching this movie. Like, what year is it? Yeah. What year was this movie <laughs> made? Like, this feels like, granted, not in acting style or anything like that, but this feels like a movie looking back many years later, like maybe a movie from like the sixties or seventies looking back at this time. Cause it's so forward thinking. Mm. And that scene specifically like, cause you kind of, as you start as someone like me, who's pretty liberal and read liberal is pretty anti-war. Yep. You listen to that character and you're like, well, you know, maybe, but then like, as he goes into more detail about what he's talking about, you're like, Oh, okay. This guy's, a crackpot and this guy's being really insulting to people who literally in this case lost their limbs and you very much are on Homer's side in that. Mm. And I think it's the one moment in the movie where you really truly feel that frustration where he feels like, Oh God, if I only had, if I only had my hands, like God, what I would do to this man, yeah. you know? And, and you feel that anger and you feel that rage and that kind of impotent rage almost. Uh, in that moment, and then you realize like how it's how important it is to have your brothers in arms. Yeah, how important it is to have your friends to back you up, and that's not anything to do with disability. There's a there's moments in all of our lives where we feel useless and we feel like we can't make a difference, even though we know what the right thing to do is, and that's when we need to lean on our friends. Mm. And you really do feel that. And it's interesting you brought it up that like they didn't know each other. Before the beginning of this movie, before the beginning of this couple weeks. Yeah. But it's almost like you see the way they interact and you're like, this is this is camaraderie. This is brotherhood. This is love. And you feel it from all of them. And even when they're at odds, as I mentioned before, there's not 
rage at each other. It's almost it's almost like that parental almost disappointment. Yeah. Like, I can't believe you're here. I don't want to have this conversation with you, but I have to I have to protect my daughter. Right. Not from you, but from the situation that you're bringing. I don't think you ever feel like he shows up and he's shaking his finger at him and saying he's a bad person. It's just like, man, you, you can't do this. You can't you can't do this to yourself. You can't do and you've got to do the right thing because they look at like, you know, Myrna Loy and Friedrich March. They they're a great pair there. And especially you get to see as you were talking about the Nick and Nora thing before. It's perfect casting with having Myrna Loy there because of the expectation of the characters that she has played over those films, the Thin Man films, and of course, extensively throughout her career, that lighter character, she's given something that's a little bit darker and deeper here because she's missed her husband throughout the time that he's been off at war. Right. But there is that understanding and compassion for him. There is an understanding and compassion for his situation. And that mm-hmm. is missing from Fred's partner. It's missing from that situation. And they both have an understanding of what a perfect marriage should be, or maybe not a perfect marriage, but a marriage that is very much like, you know, as they say, no, we fight all the time. You know, right. we love each other, but we have our ups and downs. And they're trying to explain this to Peggy as a way of being like, yeah, by the way, look, you think that you might be able to break up his marriage, but they might just be going through a fight or a phase right. at this point. And they're trying to reason with her and come to reason and don't actually get to see the, you know, that there is no love there. There is no bond right. whatsoever at all. There never was. And she obviously has been living it up on his army dollars uh, while he's been off at war. But mm-hmm. coming back to that core relationship with the three guys, I think there is a beautiful moment as well that is very much in support of Homer where the three guys are sitting down and they're having a drink at uh, at the bar that they go to, Butcher's Bar, and they meet some new people and you can tell that the new people have this look on their face like looking at Homer, he's got hooks. And then Al goes, all right, we're going to address one thing right way. Yes, Homer has hooks. Two, it doesn't mean anything. We're not going to make a big deal about it. And in that moment, it's just like, yeah, okay, we've addressed that you're looking at them. It doesn't mean anything. Move on. And I love that kind of thing because especially coming in 1946 where, you know, this film made a lot of money. It was, had a budget of 2.1 million and it made a box office of 23.7. And so a lot of people went to go and see it. And so having something like that in their cultural mind, in their mind to go, okay, sure, this person might be losing a leg and might be losing an arm or something like that. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. And, you know, it's those kinds of things that have an impact on our day-to-day life. Um, I just think that this is, there is so much about this film that I think is really quite powerful and quite impressive that they managed to turn something around so reflectively about the war in such a short period of time. And granted, I mean, we say that like it's a surprise, you know, oh, I can't believe that they managed to do this in a short period of time. But it's like, films take a long time to make, but on the same hand, people are very quick-witted. You know, they they are Mm -hmm. alert and they know what's going on. They're smart. We're We're not stupid people. And so already, you know, we're doing things about COVID that happen... You know, straight away. Sure. Well, look at the Trump. But era. are they any good? Well, <laughs> don't look up, Dave. Don't look up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I. Uh, yeah. But it's just it's just nice to see that there are films that 
can comment on the immediacy of, well, the present straight away Mm -hmm. in a way that says, you know, it's going to be okay if we do these things. It's interesting as well. One of the things which I found quite fascinating about this film is it is very anti-capitalist in some manners. And that's most pointed in the sequences where they're talking about giving loans to soldiers Mm. who don't have any capital, who don't have any, you know, collateral or anything like that to be able to put the loan, put up against the loan. And Al is employed to be able to give these people loans and then is told swiftly, "Mm, you know, it's okay to do this one, but we can't do it for every single one. And his response is, you know, a bit drunken, but his response is, look, we've got to look after these people because they are the future. They are are our country. It is who we are as people. And if we don't do this, Mm -hmm. then what does that make us? And, you know, obviously time shows that if we didn't look after them, we didn't look after many of the soldiers and we didn't look after the economy and supporting people in being able to get started and have a good life because look at America, look at Australia, look at the UK. It's all around us and it's happening right now with COVID. Um, But I found that really surprising. Like, I don't think that William Wiles a a really left-leaning director or anything like that, but I just found it surprising to see that in there. Did, were you surprised by that at all? Yeah, and I was also surprised by – there's a sequence um, with Fred later where he, like, kind of climbs into the cockpit mm. of this old bomber. And they very pointedly say, like, basically they're just – they're turning this into scrap. They're turning it to junk, and I think that's an indictment of the country as a whole in how – because it, it's talking – in the movie, it's talking about the implements of war. But what it's really talking about is it, our soldiers. Mm. Like this is now we're just turning this into a different type of scrap and a different type of money and a di- and a different way to implement this and it is like whew, it is rough and it's another one of my favorite shots uh, in the film is when he first climbs back in and you see him kind of looking out at the at what he's become you know and, and what has become of what he used to do you know and it, he's lost and it it made me think as I was watching this because this actor Dana Andrews was also in a movie we covered earlier, the Oxbow incident. Mm. And it's like, he might be like, in my mind, like one of the most underrated leading men of this era. Like he's so good. And he tends to be, at least in the movies that we've watched for this podcast, he's been a little bit overshadowed um, by other actors in these movies that also happen to be great. Like Fonda in the Oxbow incident. Um, and the, the young man who plays Homer in this, like, he's definitely the one we remember from this, Mm. but like, he's such a wonderful leading man, steadying force in both of these movies. Like he's so good. Um, and like, you know, that scene I talked about earlier at the, at the wedding when he's the best man, like so much of it is his look and the way he looks at her Mm. and it just communicates so much. And I just, he's one of those actors I'm kind of curious to go back and watch more movies that he's been in because every movie that I've seen with him in it so far has been just tremendous. He's very like captivating. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's really quite he's also very good looking. Like, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. He's also very pleasant to look at. <laughs> yeah. I find it interesting as well. Like just having a look at the poster, he's on the poster, Friedrich Mark, uh, Myrna Lloyd, Teresa Wright, and then Virginia Mayo who plays uh, Fred's uh, wife. It's on the poster. And, 
poor Harold Russell. The loose woman. Yeah, poor Harold Russell isn't <laughs> on the poster. Um, doesn't even get a mention. Uh, so, you know, very much a supporting character there. But, yeah, I, I feel like, like I've seen this film on a lot of best-off lists. Uh, it was, in 1989, it was selected as one of the uh, first 25 films selected to be part of the Library of Congress, uh, Congress uh, for Preservations and National Film Society. So it is a majorly culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant film. Um, so it seems a bit redundant to be surprised that it is good. But I guess, you know, when... Look, there's a lot of there's a lot of movies that a lot of people think are great that I watch and I'm like, wah, wah. like people like people love Mrs. Miniver. I think it's I think it's bad. I, yeah. I don't think it's an enjoyable movie. I don't like the lessons it's teaching. I don't really like the filmmaking. So like you never know. There are movies every year. You know, we talk a lot about Oscar winners and like their movies. I mean, you know, Green Book won, a, won an Oscar, you know, like it's not any good. Um, so, so you never know, you never know. And we never know 10 years later what we're going to look back on and think like, oh, that's actually a really important movie. Yeah. Right. Sometimes, sometimes I think we know right away. Like when you see a movie like Moonlight, you know, like, okay, there's, there's something important happening here. But do you, do you know that every time? Not necessarily. So like, there are lots of movies that are really well thought of that I go back and I'm like, really? That one? Yeah. That's, that's and, and I mean, you have that reaction to Citizen Kane. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. Like, so you just never know what you're going to like and what you're, what's going to pull you in. And we've said that about some of the films that were nominated in the past that we've discussed that at the time they were well received, but they were nominated and, you know, have gone on to be enduring classics, Grand Illusion, for example. Right. Um, you know, those kinds of things. And sometimes the opposite, right? Like if you ask, I have learned the painful lesson that if you talk to people who really like Hitchcock and bring up suspicion, <laughs> they're like, ah, that movie sucks. That's not any good. Uh, but it got nominated for best picture. Like it's, you know, you just never know. Yep. And so did Spellband. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. And yet Vertigo exactly. and Shadow of a Doubt and Psycho didn't. It's just, it's a yeah. roll of the dice, really. It kind of is. It really is. Uh, do you have anything yeah. more to say about the best years of our lives? Is there anything? Um, I I would just say that if you haven't seen this movie and the runtime is getting you down, to just give it a shot because mm. I think I think you'll know within like the first thirty minutes whether this movie is for you or not. Um, and it's I don't know. It's better than its description because if you look at the script, like oh, three men come home from war and they have trouble getting back into normal life. Like oh god, I've seen this before. Who cares? But it's so much more than that. Yeah. And honestly, if you're someone who pretends like you care about representation and how people are shown on screen that usually aren't, this is a must-see. Exactly. You know, this is – I mean, I feel like, sadly, this movie handles uh, differing abilities physically better than a lot of movies do now. Oh, very much I was much really so. impressed. And I was so – Andrew, I was so worried, like, when this character shows up – with no four, I was like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, they're going to, it's 1946, oh, no, this is going to be so bad. And it's like, wow, they're handling this really respectfully. Yeah. And it shocked me. I just kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. I just kept waiting for there to be a scene and be like, isn't it terrible? He should kill himself, blah, blah, blah. And there's none of that, especially none of that from characters that we know we should be listening mm. to. The only people who say terrible things to him are like the conspiracy nuts. Like, okay, well, we don't have to listen to the fool on the bar stool. We need to listen to our lead characters. Yeah. And they all build him up and not in a way that feels false. It never feels like infantilizing. 
at any point. And I was so, so impressed by that because we still don't know how to do that in film now. And the fact that we did it in the late 40s is pretty impressive. Exactly. Yeah. Give your Oscar back, Eddie Redmayne. Um, But I think that, you know, like there are just moments here. There's a moment early on where Harold Russell is in a scene with his on-screen father and his father is taking off his prosthetics and we don't see his arms at Mm. that point. We just see that he's taking them off. And at that right. point, I was like, oh, are we going to save it for some kind of reveal later on? And they they are re- revealed in a very emotional scene, which we, we talked about earlier. Yeah, later that on. gentle scene. Yeah, yeah. which is mm-hmm. very kind and considerate. And I thought that was just, just very, yeah, kind, considerate, and a very powerful film in a lot of ways. I think this is really, really good. It's great. Uh, And it is a surprising film because of the things that it does. Because, as you're saying, we haven't done those things in modern films. Mm -hmm. We haven't done those things in so long. And, you know, this is 1946. Like, 60 years later, how can we have not fixed these problems in cinema still? Or at least just done this. Like, just lived up to this example, but no, No, we're we're bad. Yeah, we've got to get Jake Gyllenhaal and get him to have, you know, whatever that film was. Stronger, was it? Yeah. Stronger. Yes, that is the name of that bad movie. Like, why? (laughs) Why? You know, it's not hard to get, like, people who are disabled disabled have them on screen. Yeah. We did it in 1946. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, does this film matter? I think we kind of answered yeah, the it abso- does. Yeah, yeah, I think it absolutely does. I think just from a representation standpoint in a movie like this, it matters. And also just showing, without over-dramatizing things, showing the difficulty of coming back from war and how little we as a culture and a society do for these folks who, whether you agree with the war or not, is really not the point. Mm. The point is these men and women offered up their life and limbs for freedom, for the right reasons. Whether the country was doing it for the right reasons is a different conversation. Yeah. But these men did it for the right reasons, and we still treated them like literal little junk, as we mentioned in that scene, in, the, in a junkyard. Um, so it's important to take a closer look at the part that we all play. I agree. So, yeah, it definitely matters. Definitely. I, I agree with that completely. It is, it is a film that matters, and it is very important, and it's good. And it's not just because if Teresa Wright this time, it's good, you know. <laughs> not just. <laughs> Unfortunately, this will be the last time that we'll be talking about her in this podcast. But uh, if you haven't gathered, you should really go and watch Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, she's great in that. Um, you could also watch The Rainmaker. That was her last film from 1997. <laughs> Jeez. Nothing in between. Just Shadow of a Doubt and The Rainmaker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do that. Um, and then also watch this. Uh, you can follow us on social media, I guess, if you want to do that, because I tweet so often there. But uh, awards don't pod. <laughs> Basically, anytime I tag. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, no, shit. It might be. Oh, yeah, I have a Twitter yeah, account. That's right. Cool. <laughs> cool. Uh, where can people find you, Dave? Uh, you can find me at DarnThatDave on Twitter. I also write and edit for In Session Film. I have a bunch of other podcasts, but you can find them all at DarnThatDave. But really, you should follow uh, Awards Don't Pod. Uh, we'll be more active. We sure, swear. yeah. Especially because the Oscar nominations are tomorrow. So, you know. Yeah, it's it's time. We will have thoughts. 
All right, we'll see you all on the next episode, which is for some film by Frank Capra. A wonderful film, one might say. Yeah. Christmassy, no, no. kind of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're a little light. Who cares? Doesn't matter. This is a movie for. It's a movie for all seasons, Andrew. We're gonna watch It's a Wonderful Life. Exactly. Cool. We'll see you on the next one. Hey, you guys, jump! Get out of there, bail out! Kadoski, Kadoski, get out of that plane! Two shoots open. Three. Come on, the rest of you guys. Fred. Come on, get out! Fred, wake up! Kadoski, wake up! Kadoski, she's burning up! Get out! Get out! Fred, wake up! Wake up! She's burning up! She's gonna hit the gout! It's all right, Fred. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep, Fred. There's nothing to be afraid of. All you have to do is go to sleep. Grace. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details.